Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com packet pushers to find out more. You ever want to build your own ISP? If you're a network engineer, I bet the thought has crossed your mind now and then because how cool would that be? Connecting people to the greatest communications network in the world. Our guest today has spent most of his career building ISPs, and in fact, he's working on one right now. I got a peek a few weeks ago at his new project and seeing this work in progress in production, serving previously underserved customers was inspiring. Jim Troutman, welcome to Heavy Networking, and I <laughs> hope you're ready, my friend. I have a ton of questions for you, and, and let's just start at the beginning, Jim. Uh, just introduce yourself very briefly. Who are you, and what do you do? Well, thanks for having me. So I'm a guy doing stuff in the ISP <laughs> world. Uh, I've I've often called myself a cranky old man on the internet because I've been on the internet since '87 been doing stuff off and on professionally since the early 90s, building internet infrastructure, done a ton of consulting work. I've owned a few ISPs, been business partners in a CLEC, done a bunch of things, have all the scar tissue to prove it. Uh, right now, I'm director of technology for Tilson Technology. Uh, and uh, this includes a division of Tilson called Tilson Broadband. Okay. Well, then let's get into the, the building an ISP part, which you're doing under the Tilson umbrella here, which I got to say, Jim, this is the first really my first question. What is the business case for this? Because off the top of my head, it's like, isn't this a done thing? Don't we have enough ISPs in the world? Why would you start an ISP? Well, because most of the ISPs aren't very good. Uh, as you guys know, and I think all the public knows at this point from the pandemic in the last year and a half, there's a huge amount of the world that does not have adequate broadband. And there's a huge need. And finally, now in the United States, anyway, there's an, a lot of effort at the governmental levels, at all levels, to provide funding to help meet that broadband need. It's going to take several years. Um, I, I'm personally a bit critical of some of the incumbent uh, telco providers for what they have and have not done mm -hmm. over the last several decades to uh, provide broadband for, for all of us. So there's plenty of opportunity in the market. There's plenty of unserved people. Uh, there's also plenty of areas where there is an ISP, but, you know, they somehow think that, uh, you know, 25 by three is still adequate in 2021. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, in, in the US, though, there's also some really unique stuff where there's actually only one ISP in a lot of geographies, Absolutely. especially in the regions of the of the regions. And um, and although they talk a lot about uh, politically, they talk about competitors and capitalism and, you know, freedom of business and, the, and business should be preeminent. There's actually a lot of uh, the US market is actually served by just one provider who most likely is in a pretty comfortable, they're pretty fat and happy because you can actually make quite a bit of money if there's no competition in, in uh, providing general networking. And um, service levels are fairly ordinary. We did a, we've done several SD-WAN shows uh, with people who have deployed SD-WAN just to get away from E1 circuits in 2021. And E1 
was the only service of choice that they could get up until SD-WAN arrived. So, I, I mean, it is an interesting situation where, and this is not also, by the way, same applies to many other countries. I know for a fact in Australia, similar things happen in the UK, although there's a much more regulated market. Big telcos here are required. They're obligated to provide equivalent level services to small sounds as are they are big ones. And Europe is another bag of, is another whole bag of, of, of squirrels, if you like. <laughs> and so the rules do not vary. So don't let me single out the US, but I call it out simply because we've done shows with US technology companies where they've highlighted that some areas of the US are definitely back in the 1980s. So, Oh, yes. And, and in a lot of places, there's a duopoly where you've got the incumbent telephone company. You probably have a cable television operator. The cable television operators are the ones providing closer to real broadband in most markets now. Uh, mm. But uh, these guys don't really compete. I I have been on the inside of a number of these organizations, and there's a lot of uh, let's say gentlemen's agreements. You know, we're going to have mm. our territory. You're going to have your territory, and we're going to just make sure that we don't compete uh, at all or, or in a limited mm. way along the edges. Um, mm. So it's uh, I, I think it's really a failure of the market. Uh, particularly in the U.S. around broadband. Okay, so this begs the question. There's gentlemen's agreements, we're not going to compete, and there's a lot of existing infrastructure that's out there that is owned by these companies. How do you even get physical access to the market if you want to start your own ISP? Uh, well, it all starts with poles and roads and right-of-ways. Hmm. So you, you need to put up your own uh, fiber because uh, everything should be fiber in 2021. Yes, I know there's a lot of wisps. There's a lot of... Uh, technology that can help out right now uh, in terms of uh, providing some level of things that approach broadband speeds. But those wireless technologies, they're not long-term. And as, as you know, we know in the industry, you're going to be replacing your equipment every, what, three years, five years, seven years at the most. Um, fiber's fiber. Fiber's going to be there in the ground or in the air, 25-year minimum and some people are really saying, in reality, fiber has about a 50-year lifespan. So who arbitrates my access to the pole if I've got a spool of fiber I want to string up there? Uh, generally, you have uh, that access is arbitrated by the pole owners, which are typically uh, joint-owned by the power companies and the incumbent telephone company. In some places, they're wholly owned by one or the other. In a few jurisdictions, they may be owned by the town, municipality, or county, it, there's some variability. Uh, there's a set of rules governing the attachment to those poles, usually at the state level. There's some at the FCC level. Um, rules vary, but basically you have to pay to put your cables on the poles. Uh, you have to pay to adjust everyone else's cables to make room for you. This is called make ready. That's an entire conversation hmm. uh, around those sort of fees. And then you have to pay for a construction, you know, your own crew or a contractor to construct the line, uh, the steel strand that everything is hung off of, and then put your fiber up and lash it to that steel strand. Are the owners of the poles obligated to allow me access to the pole? Generally, yes, but they do not have to do that on an expedited basis, depending on... <laughs> Okay. The jurisdiction and, and the rules in play, they may have 180 days to actually respond to your request 
to get on the polls. And I have absolutely seen instances where the uh, responsible authority is responding on the 179th day uh, to oh. come back to you and say, oh, by the way, yeah, it's going to cost you $30,000 in make ready to do this one mile section. Uh, oftentimes, frankly, in, in my opinion, because the, uh, the poll owners defer the maintenance on those polls. But when you come along as the new guy wanting to get on the poll, they're like, great, we can now stick this company with all of our deferred maintenance costs. So all of a sudden they need, you know, all these new polls and guys and all this stuff that they should have been doing anyway for the last 20 years, you get to pay for. It sounds enormously expensive. So the, so you, you can do it. There are mechanisms to get you on the polls so you can run your fiber. But just to get that far sounds like it's a substantial cost to get involved. It can be. Uh, and in other areas, you know, most of my experience is primarily in New England and New England is uh, known for many things, including all of our rocks. Yeah. So there's not a lot of underground facilities in New England. They do exist. In other areas like the Midwest uh, and other areas of the world, there's an awful lot of underground trenching uh, and, and conduit and, and things like that. Uh, but predominantly here in the Northeast, you're going to be doing aerial attachment on poles. Uh, and yeah, it is very expensive. The challenge with aerial attachment is that um, your fiber won't last 50 years. If you trench it into the ground, you will definitely get 50 plus years of life. So if you can manage it, trenching it is definitely preferable because you get less thermal differential. So the ground is much, uh, the, the life of the fiber is generally determined by how many cycles of temperature it goes through. So day, night, summer, winter, you know, snow, heat waves, that type of stuff. And the fiber will degrade like any material, really. Yeah. Also, underground is less vulnerable to that dreaded enemy of aerial fiber, which is squirrels. Mm -hmm. uh, under uh, yeah. You say that, but uh, I did actually have to um, once buy what was called gopher-proof fiber, which was literally <laughs> yeah. triple armored uh, mm -hmm. because the gopher is the underground version yes. of the squirrel, of course. Uh, so, you know, do, do yeah, be aware that, that you're na uh, there are natural predators for fiber optic cabling of any, of any type in the air and in the ground. Yes. Um, but you can actually get cable uh, in Australia where I did uh, participate in a project on this nature. We actually used a Minimog. We needed to run uh, 1,200 kilometres of fiber in the ground. And we actually bought this very special Minimog truck, which is a six-wheeled, and put a cable spool on the back. And then you could actually buy like a plow blade. And then what happened is the plow blade would go in, would go down 18 inches to 24 inches or uh, sort of 40 centimetres to 60 centimetres and then bury the fibre. So the truck would put the blade down. It was a really thin blade. It wasn't like a plow blade, which is trying to turn the soil. It's more like a, a knife blade. And the fibre would spool off the back of the Minimog for, and I think we were getting 30 kilometre runs and then we'd have to stop and splice the fibre and then so on and so on. Um, and then we ran it and I think we got to 400 kilometres before we found discovered that we needed gopher-proof fibre. <laughs> so we then had to come back and buy. Now, you, you're probably going to talk about this, but it leads into the discussion around, you know, this whole process of mounting varies according to where you are. You're talking about being an area which is rocky or stony, and so putting aerial fiber up is the answer. But aerial fiber is cheaper than putting it in, doing direct burial or burial or laying conduit, but much more expensive in terms of maintenance over time. So it's a trade-off, isn't it? Is that right? Absolutely. 
Um, you know, one of the factors with uh, doing aerial is you're going to pay pole attachment fees annually, uh, calculated per pole. And those are going to vary um, from several dollars to tens of dollars per year per pole. Depends on the jurisdiction. Um, you also have uh, tree trimming expenses, uh, which is something it's New England. We have a lot of trees. If uh, And this is another thing that I see the incumbents uh, you know, they don't do as much as they should because it's it's typically the first thing cut is the tree trimming budget. So, and that's the sort of maintenance that you can defer for a year, two years, three years, and then you have a big storm come through and all yeah. those trees that you didn't cut back are now coming down in your lines and you end up paying for it in service restoration. So everybody on the pole shares the cost of tree trimming? Generally, yes. Or there, you know, there, there's... Uh, a number of ways it can be done. There's, uh, there, there's unfortunately very little standard uh, in the industry. It's, it's very jurisdictional. Hmm. Uh, so you've got your, your fiber up. Now you'll have some kind of a data center where your major pop is, and then you're running fiber down a line that you can trunk off of and support neighborhoods and so on, which feels like a hub with a spoke, and that feels like a spoke off. So what, what is that? It can't actually look like that in a deployment, right? Must be a loop or something? Or? Well, it depends. Uh, always in networking, as you know, the answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah. So it depends on budget. It depends on physical geography of the area being served. Um, I had one client once that uh, even though they were a telco and, and they had a lot of POTS lines, they needed reliability. They could not get much uh, redundancy built into their network because their physical service area was extremely linear. So there was really no way for them to run rings because most of the roads ran straight through their territory, north, south, or east, west, and there wasn't a whole lot of branches. Uh, so it, it, it very depends on, on your, your topography. Uh, but ideally, yes, you would have some sort of uh, ring a lot of uh, providers run uh, G8032, uh, redundant rings of equipment, uh, connecting maybe little small serving sites. Uh, you might call them remote, remote terminals, uh, servicing cabinets. Uh, sometimes these are literally on the side of the road. Sometimes they're clamped to the side of a telephone pole. Uh, more and more so these days, the technology's gotten small enough that it can actually be on a strand mount piece of equipment that literally just hangs off the strand on the pole as long as you can get it power somehow. And that effectively creates a loop and wrap signal back around for you. So if there's an interruption in the main line, you can still, you've still got service. There. As, as long as you have the physical fiber that, you know, the topography, sometimes, yeah. as you know, you can run a collapsed ring yeah. uh, where, you know, both fibers in and out cross the same path. Uh, but ideally you want that geographic uh, diversity. But not everybody can afford that. Not every build needs that if it's primarily a residential build in a very rural area, like say here in Vermont. Uh, usually there's just one way in and one way out uh, as far as getting down a, a rural road. So if there's a pole strike, a truck hits a pole, uh, takes it out and the fiber goes down, then people down the line. Are gonna be out of service, yeah. yeah. And that you know that's a service restoration event. And uh, either you have to have your own crew whoever you are to deal with that, or you have uh, some some vendors, contractors with a restoration contract, and you try to get somebody out there in the next, you know, 12 hours and get it done. 
So, so yeah, you, you are responsible. There's no, if there's a pole strike, who, who does fix that since it's a multi-tenant thing? Uh, so typically if there's a pole strike, the absolute first utility, uh, that's going to deal with it is the power company because, uh, what they do is really life and death. Like you can be killed if you are not doing things correctly as a utility worker, restoring power. So typically the rule is the power company is going to do the pole restoration. If they need to set a new pole, whatever, they take care of that. And then their crew goes in with nobody else and they, they fix the power. They make mm -hmm. the power come back. Once the, the area is safe to work in, then the next set of attachers will go in. And sometimes uh, it, it varies between like, hey, does the power uh, after the power company, is it going to be the cable TV company? Is it going to be the telephone company or, or the new fiber provider? Um, it's usually going to be done in order of who's on the pole, top to bottom. Uh, in a lot of cases, huh. particularly in very rural areas, uh, what you end up with is you have contractors, vendors that actually, they might actually have the restoration contact, uh, contract for every other entity on the pole. So they get paid by the, by the cable company, they get paid by the telephone company, they get paid by the fiber company to go out and do the same job. Hmm. Um, because they roll one truck and they just fix everybody while they're there. If they're under contract to support ab all those absolutely. Vendors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know, frankly, in a lot of the rural areas, uh, even the big incumbents, they've really cut their staffing and cut their budget. So they've reduced the number of, of people and trucks that they have to service a, a given geography. Hmm. Yeah. They pull them back to a, a, a depot as they call yeah. it. And then make the trucks drive 200 miles to get to a fix. In the old days, the radius was 50 miles or 30 miles for every truck depot. And then they decided that getting rid of all the depots and increasing managers' salaries was more important. Oh, sorry, shareholder payouts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dividends, dividends, dividends. Sorry, dividends. Yeah. Um, it, it's very confusing too because you actually have to maintain a substantial legal department to manage all of this. And you also have to have a provisioning system to make sure that SLAs are being met by the power company, right? Because if the power company doesn't meet their obligations, you uh, you will want to either seek a refund or seek redress or try and encourage them to have better behavior next time. Is that part of the challenge? Uh, to some extent. I mean, in just talking about service restoration, um, almost all service restoration work, it's either going to be a storm some sort of winter storm, wind storm, whatever, and mm -hmm. it's going to be a, a tree branch that's to blame, or it's going to be a vehicle accident hitting a pole. And in almost all cases of a vehicle accident, there's somebody at fault and there's an insurance company somewhere that's going to pay for it. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's actually one of the reasons why a lot of uh, these entities use contractors to uh, mm -hmm. do all the service restoration work because it makes it very clean for the insurance companies. So they can yeah. just present a bill and say, look, your accident, you know, this was $15,000 to go out and send the crew and do this work. And, you know, you owe us this money now. Yeah. There's no internal funny money cost that they're trying exactly. to. And so it does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's just, it's one of those interesting things where running that sort of infrastructure, uh, you've got to pay for each poll. So you have an accounting challenge. You've got legal challenges. You've got a whole bunch of stuff associated with this. And you've also got to have liaisons with these other parties, that's all overhead. It is. And um, 
You know, for a smaller provider, it's still doable. You can outsource many of these functions. Uh, you can uh, have a, 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 you know, a telecom specific lawyer that uh, maybe does work for other entities as well that can help you with these things. Uh, but a lot of it in the industry really does come down to the local field staff and having a good relationship. Um, like with anything else in the industry, there's going to be two or three guys from the different entities, the power company, the telephone company, et cetera, that they have this territory and that territory may be 50 miles, 100 miles radius, but they're the responsible engineer. So when you want to go get something done, attach the pole, have a repair or whatever, uh, you better have a good relationship with those guys. And uh, I have actually seen instances uh, in the past with make ready estimates where if you went out on a ride out for make ready uh, and the two engineers knew each other and trusted each other, maybe your, your make ready estimate and costs would be far lower than if the engineers did not know each other and did not trust each other and your make ready cost well, could be three times. Certainly, especially in this rural world where we all end up kind of running into each other and knowing each other yeah. in some capacity or another. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, those human relationships really matter. All right, Jim. So I've laid a bunch of fire. I haven't laid a bunch of fire. I've probably hung it on a pole in the, this particular circumstance we're talking about here. Maybe I've put it in the ground. I've got some infrastructure now. Internet access is, of course, the thing. But what would I lay on top of that? The other services, maybe, so that I could generate more revenue out of this thing. Because as we've talked about these overheads, it feels like as much uh, revenue as I can generate would be a good thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the name of the game for most providers is ARPU, uh, average revenue per user. You want to increase that revenue as much as you can. So, uh, you know, some providers want to do that by making the internet expensive, just your, your regular broadband. And uh, that uh, doesn't work as well in a competitive environment, fortunately. So the other services are things like voice, uh, plain old telephone service or SIP, there's still a demand for that. Uh, believe it or not, not everybody has just gone to a cell phone. Uh, so that that's a pretty good service to add on. It can be profitable in quantity. Uh, I think there's a lot of other services that uh, you're, you're seeing some of the more forward-leaning ISPs uh, come up with. Um, things like video services are, are not really profitable. And I think you're going to see the death of most of the uh, services that are like IPTV or traditional cable TV delivered on the same fiber as the data. Uh, almost everything's going to be over the top. It's already going that way. Because of all the streaming services. Because of all the streaming services and even yeah. things like Sling TV, YouTube TV. They're not, you know, maintaining uh, an IPTV multicast infrastructure yeah. on a network with like 50,000 users. It's not a good day. It's not fun. Um, which is why uh, a lot of that's going away. And over the top just works. You know, you should have a network with enough bandwidth to support that. But I, I think there's all sorts of services that can be offered. You're going to see smart homes, uh, you know, DVR camera services, uh, security services, home monitoring services. There, I mean, yes, you can go to Amazon. You can go to get your ring camera. You can buy all these third-party things, but... I think it's hard for us in the industry to realize that we are just a small percentage uh, and uh, of the public. And yeah, we're the folks that love to buy these things and hook them up and make them work and play with our home uh, you know, assistant. Most people don't want to do that. 
they just want it to work and they want a service <laughs> and they probably want somebody to come to their house and install it for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the future for a lot of these ISPs is, is that uh, value added service. Interesting. I think the, I think the value is just offering IP packets. <laughs> don't, don't worry about TCP and up like, uh, like the complexity of a cable company is that the idea was is that they were big enough and ugly enough to do deals with Hollywood studios to license content. If you're a small provider, the hardest part is not actually doing IP multicast, which is extraordinarily painful and guaranteed to fail. Uh, but it is the licensing content to stream. Uh, and the, the, the fact is that those deals where you're going to say, they're going to want to say, well, I want to charge you, $15 per person on your network. And you're going to say, but what if everybody doesn't want to connect? And they're going to go, well, we don't care. We want to charge you $15 per person. Cause that's how the cable companies work. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There's you get 96 channels at $50, $15 ahead. And the cable, so what the cable companies do is they have two channels worth something and then they give you 95 channels of trash. Absolutely. In- <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, uh, in many cases, the cable companies, uh, so two things happen there. There's a little sidebar into the cable TV business. Uh, some some of the shopping channels and stuff, the reason there's so many shopping channels on the lineups is that those shopping channels pay the cable companies to carry them um, or they make them available for free. Uh, and then the other thing is is these contracts that, that Greg is alluding to. Uh, you'll have a content provider that has, uh, let's just say, a really popular particular mm. channel, particular network, but they maybe have five other channels that no one's ever heard of, but their contract will say, well, if you want this channel that everybody wants, mm. you got to take these other five and you've got to pay for it. Oh, and by the way, you must put this in your basic service plan and you must offer it to all of your subscribers, or at least you have to pay us for all of your subscribers, whether or not anybody yeah. actually watches it. Yeah. My goal is to say, I would suggest to people don't, and keep in mind that cable TV is unique to the U.S., there is, as far as I know, it doesn't exist in any other country in the world. The idea that cable TV uh, is necessary. Every other country in the world, they deliver it over a radio signal instead of down a cable. Um, it's a it's a hook in the the history of technology. Is to, the reason for that. So again, this the jurisdictions vary really widely, and uh, so yeah, it's interesting to 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 contrast the differences. Like here in the UK. All TV comes via radio antenna or over the internet now. Not has n- there was an attempt at a cable, but cable TV uh, only has, was around for about fifteen years and is very quickly dying off because it's not entrenched like it is in the US. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor Interoptic. Interoptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly, U.S.-based, OEM-agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. Interoptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. Interoptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. 
That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. Well, Jim, I got a question, uh, one more question before we get into some of the nerd stuff about the ISP thing here. Uh, and that question is just simple money, uh, to do, there's a big capital outlay here to get the infrastructure in place. And we, we only talked about fiber. We didn't even talk about stuff on the back end, what you have to attach to people's house. We'll get into some of that in a bit, but how do you get access to, to capital? Who's going to want to invest in something like this? Well, that's, it, there's more people than ever than, that want to invest in this. So uh, you're seeing right now a lot of municipalities, a lot of small communities, which have been suffering for years with not enough access to broadband. The pandemic really highlighted that. So you have an enormous number of communities of all sizes from you know very small up to county or even state level that are saying, enough is enough. We're going to form a, a public owned entity that's going to build a network and operate it. Uh, so some of that is efforts to do, uh, you know, raising uh, taxes, issuing a bond. Uh, sometimes it's a revenue bond where maybe you're working with a bank and you have a business plan. Um, and then you also have, uh, of course, all of the stimulus money and grant money coming from the feds. Uh, and then you have a lot of private equity. There's an enormous number of private equity companies in the last several years that have suddenly realized that fiber networks are an asset and they're a long-term asset and they can make a lot of money because you can put a lot of tenants on that fiber network. So there's a, a, a big move in the private equity world to invest in these sort of things. Um, mostly they're flipping them. I, I've seen uh, deals being done for 12X EBITDA or higher. Wow. Uh, in fact, I've I've heard of deals at at above eighteen x EBITDA hmm. uh, for these fiber providers. So, uh, you know, getting money isn't as hard as it used to be. Uh, I think pre pandemic, a lot of the problem was even convincing the general taxpayer that internet was a thing that you needed, that it was a utility. I think most everyone now understands that. Yeah, this is this is really another utility. So maybe we should start treating it like such. Hmm. Um, so I can talk a little bit about the costs involved. Uh, my rule of thumb, very generous estimate, is fiber is going to cost you about $50,000 a mile, road a mile. Generous estimate, meaning you think that's a low or a high number? That's a high number. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah I typically see projects for between $25,000 to $35,000 a mile uh, complete. This is aerial. I've seen projects as low as twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a mile. No, is that is that a complete solution end to end? I've got packet delivery. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you know, on the low end, that would be like a existing rural operator that is already on the poles, already has the strand. They have some old technology, whether it's copper uh, twisted pair as a telephone company, or they have an old cable TV plant. That's the cost of just overlashing fiber on top of their existing plant and putting in the equipment hmm. uh, in, in a rural setting. In a uh, downtown urban area, uh, it can be quite a bit more. It can be hundreds of thousands of dollars per mile, particularly if you have to get into underground uh, facilities. 
But if you want to compare that to the costs of other public infrastructure, like roads, uh, bare minimum in a very rural area just to resurface a road, a skim coat, not even to fix the road, it's going to be $100,000 a mile. <laughs> to actually build your average two-lane rural road, uh, it can be a million dollars a mile. Uh, in urban settings, you're talking multiple millions of dollars a mile to construct roads. So broadband is cheap compared to roads. And permanent and has you know, tangible benefits that Absolutely. are... Absolutely. I mean, not that a road isn't a tangible benefit, right? But there's so much that you bring, especially in the remote work, work from home environment, that if you can get broadband to someone's house, that's beneficial beyond simple uh, transportation. Well, simple. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of simple, Jim, let's get into some nerd stuff. So I want to walk through what your startup ISP, your just any startup ISP looks like typically. And let's start from the the core and then work our way out to the home. Uh, so in the core, I've got some kind of IP transport, but uh, th 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 there's more than that. I've got to connect to the internet itself through some other providers. I've got to be able to pick up the incoming signal some way. It's not ethernet, I don't suppose, for the most part. So talk me through what that core looks like. Sure, so on the side facing the internet, it's actually mostly gonna be ethernet these days. Okay. Ethernet's pretty much one. Uh, you know, we, we have all these lovely uh, ethernet technologies at 100 gig and beyond these days. Uh, so if you're a startup ISP, a you know, maybe you're a small uh, community or a an individual that wants to service your neighborhood and serve yourself, uh, there's been several folks who have done that. Uh, I know a guy named uh, Jared Mouch, who's, uh, he's done that himself in Michigan, built his own ISP. He uh, did it to meet his own needs, but also to service his, his neighborhood. So anyway, you need an internet connection. Where do you get that? Well... You might get it from the local incumbent if you really want to spend a lot of money. Uh, you might try to trans uh, get some sort of transport circuit to connect you to a major uh, telecom hotel or data center where you have options where you can buy from multiple carriers and get your so, tr transit at a cheap price. Sounds like you're describing connecting to a local pop, something that's in town right. versus something that might be far away where you got to do a lot of backhaul to get to it, but right. it's going to be more uh, attractive cost-wise. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if uh, a lot of smaller ISPs will start off buying their internet from the local monopoly and it's going to be at the local monopoly's price. And oftentimes their networks are really not that good from a, <laughs> from an IP routing perspective. Um, it's extremely common for many of these incumbents to not even understand what IPv6 is, yeah. Uh, let alone offer it. Uh, some of the providers uh, can offer it if you lean on them hard enough. Um, Consolidated is in our area is one of those. They they can do IPv6 for businesses. They don't currently do it for any of their residential. Mm -hmm. uh, so you you have to have an internet connection. I would argue that you really need two internet connections, yeah, minimum viable product, because, uh, you know, everybody's network, no matter who you are, you're going to have a bad day at least one day out mm -hmm. of the year every couple of years. Network's going to go down. You're going to have a backhoe uh, strike. Something's going to happen. So you better have two connections and you better do your due diligence on those connections and make sure that, uh, you know, they're not both crossing the same bridge over the same river, mm -hmm. uh, even if they're in separate conduits. Uh, I've, I've seen that. I've 
even seen uh, uh, cables and connections that everybody swore were, was in separate conduits and they were in the same cable. But generally speaking, with some thought applied, it doesn't sound more complex than if I'm a regular company just looking for absolutely. internet connection. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very similar to being an enterprise looking for an internet connection. Uh, I would absolutely recommend that you do BGP routing from yeah. day one. It's not that hard. It's not that expensive. Uh, you should have it. I, I certainly know of plenty of ISPs that have started up without doing BGP. Um, Hmm. But, uh, you know, it gives you the most flexibility. Okay, so we've got a couple of Internet circuits coming from uh, presumably physically diverse and uh, topologically yep. diverse sources. All right. How yep. am I powering all this mess? Well, so you're going to have a router of some sort, maybe probably a couple of routers. Oh. Uh, routers uh, these days, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a half million dollar router. It doesn't have to be something that takes up half a rack. Uh, you can actually do quite a lot with some very inexpensive equipment uh, these days. Well, what's the what's the decision point here? How many like packets per second kind of thing? It's packets per second and throughput. So a lot of, uh, you know, a small entity, they're going to start with maybe a gigabit internet connection. Those are very common, very inexpensive now. Really? Even yep. in the world of over the top, uh, in the world of over the top streaming, I would they, think I could saturate a gigabit nothing flat with some residential customers it you it starting off i can tell you that uh, a gigabit will support between 200 to 500 fiber to the home customers depending on the level of service you're trying to offer and how how many complaints you're willing to take during the busy hour uh, <laughs> the interesting thing about most eyeball isps which is what you call a, a residential service network is your peak traffic period is really about two hours in the evenings. It varies somewhat, but it's typically between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. That was my guess. And uh, that's when all of your, your big traffic happens. The peak to trough of like the, the lowest to the highest is um, usually about 7x. So, uh, so you only have that little two-hour window to worry about. So I've certainly seen some providers, including big ones, who just say, well, you know, it's just going to be a little slower during that peak window. And that's when everybody's streaming their Netflix and there's a little bit of buffering, but hey, it's okay. We'll all get through it. Um, I don't think that's really the right way to run a network or do your capacity planning. Uh, so I, I'd like to have more bandwidth than that. Well, so it sounds to me like maybe, you know, two by 10 gig would be a good two, starting point. Two by 10 is very affordable and a good starting point. Uh, these days, you know, 10, 10 gig is everywhere. Uh, you know, 10 gig is the new one gig. Yeah. Um, and, and also one of my uh, sayings, you know, in my own little networking manifesto is that if you need more than two by 10, just go to 100. Um, because uh, particularly in the telco world, uh, there's a lot more than just the cost of the electronics that you have to worry about. There's the cost of cross connects, the cost of fibers. Cross connects inside of telecom buildings can be expensive. So the more bandwidth you can push down a pipe than, uh, or a, a down yep. a strand, the, the more yep. cost effective your physical plant is. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but there's a get, jump if I, in equipment if I go from 10 gig to 100 gig. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it's, it's less expensive than it's ever been. Hmm. And it continues to get uh, cheaper and cheaper. And that's, what, uh, you know, again, sidebar discussion here. One of the wonderful things about all this, uh, 
optical technology is that it's so inexpensive now compared to what it was. You can think about even in the enterprise world, what did you pay for a gigabit SFP 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Mm. What were you paying for a 10 gig SFP plus 10 years ago, five years ago? Well, today they're so cheap that I don't even worry about replace, uh, you know, RMAing them if they fail. I can get a pair of uh, 10 gig SFP plus by die for like under 60 bucks mm-hmm. yeah. for, for a pair. Uh, you can get one gig for 22 bucks a pair. Um, so the, the cost of the equipment and the optics is, is lower than it's ever been. Do I have to have a massive generator to uh, cover me when the power goes out? Uh, ideally, yeah. So, uh, so you have a, you have your network center. You've got a couple of routers. You got your internet connections. You're going to have your aggregation point there. Uh, probably some switches to aggregate all the different customer traffic. Uh, you're going to want a reliable power system. Uh, probably that's going to mean a DC plant, uh, either twenty four, um, excuse me, twenty four volt or forty eight volt uh, system. A lot of Wisps use twenty four volt. Uh, what they've discovered uh, is that it, it's a lot more power efficient to make all your equipment DC powered, particularly if it's sitting on a mountaintop mm-hmm. and powered by a solar array, at least part of the time, uh, rather than dealing with, uh, you know, AC to DC, UPS conversions and all of that inefficiency. Mm. Uh, and most telco sites are going to have uh, 48 volt power uh, in the regulated world of POTS. Uh, they're going to be regulated and mandated to have eight hours worth of battery. Uh, however, uh, fun fact, cellular isn't considered POTS. So a lot of those cell towers, um, they either have no battery backup or they may have a couple hours. Um, almost none of the uh, carriers actually have eight hours or more. Uh, some of them, and most of them don't have generators either. Can you hear me now? No, no, no. I can't. <laughs> no, not at all. So at uh, for the network that we're building uh, for Tilson Broadband, uh, we have 12 hours of battery at our primary site, and we have a, a generator on site with uh, two days worth of fuel. Okay. Wow. Okay. And so- that, to me, that's just table stakes. But hmm. right. But there's, there's also tied back to some ambition of what you're trying to do as you onboard early customers you want them to have a robust experience you want them to basically never have to think about you because it's just going to work and so then when people ask them hey is uh you know you, you the, the new guys are coming to my neighborhood should i get it yeah it's been rock solid for us right. you wanted to have that testimony yeah I, I i would actually go with a contrarian opinion here it is possible and there are a number of people doing this as community broadband projects community internet projects where it's BAFO, which is best effort, right? They put it in, there's only one of everything. And if it stops working, there's nothing, you know, it stops working and everybody go and everybody accepts the fact that this was put together as a, on a different basis. You know, not everything has to be commercial 200% uptime at seven times the cost and 8,000 times the overhead to keep it running. And you can actually go in and provide a community internet that is, 95% 95% up and sell it to people and say, look, we are an effort. We're building to a price point here. We're going to give you a particular thing. And if it's out, we'll get it fixed, but it's going to take a while. Maybe add half a day, maybe a day. And you know what? If you need more than that, maybe we're not the right solution. There's a key in that philosophy, though, Greg, that you're describing, which is there's an expectation set. 
And if people sign on to the service with that level of expectation uh, set for them, yeah. that, that's one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of good community efforts going on out there. Uh, one effort that I'm familiar with is uh, NYC Mesh. I don't know if you guys have run across them. Uh, they have a very extensive wireless network around uh, the greater Manhattan area with, uh, mm -hmm. you know, thousands of users and uh, very low, very low costs. And there's other similar community efforts scattered, you know, here and there. It's it's definitely a viable model, particularly in in so, these very rural areas. Yeah, that's right. So it is a. I just wanted to make sure that you know you're talking about it from a particular perspective, but there is a potential to go with a much a different community level or a best effort experience, and especially in communities that are still using modems. Hmm. You know, or your, or um, I'm thinking of the Indian reservations in the USA, which actually have no access, yeah. no mobile phone, no data. Uh, they have mobile phones, but they only work when they drive for two hours into it into the nearest town and things like that. There are potentials for businesses that are built around best effort. Well, you mentioned BGP earlier, Jim. Is there an IGP in, that would be in the core, maybe? Or sure. Um, so. Most ISPs on the small scale are using OSPF as their IGP. Uh, however, you only want to use that to distribute loopbacks, uh, essentially, so you could run IBGP on top of that. Um, best practice is to be running IBGP internally. Uh, and ideally, you're going to set up some route reflectors early on so that you uh, can scale in the future without the, you know, everyone to everyone peering problem. Yeah. Um, but uh, the larger service providers use ISIS. Uh, I personally don't have any experience with it myself. Uh, but if you're at the uh, you know national carrier level, that's what you're going to be using. Uh, it's not as popular, uh, and I think really because a lot of the less expensive router vendors don't support it as a protocol. So therefore, uh, nobody runs it. ISIS, you mean? Yeah. Uh, that, and that's yeah. why, mm. yeah, OSPF becomes the default. Yeah. yeah. You also can't find people to operate it anymore. ISIS was popular 10 years ago, but uh, BGP has become the de facto. And finding people in remote regions, which is where most of these networks will be built, who can run ISIS is a, is a tall ask. They don't teach it anymore. No. I mean, I, I've never seen it personally in a network that I've touched. Um, and I've touched a lot of networks. Mm. Would my core network that's got multiple feeds to the internet, would I offer transit services like I was, uh, if, as if I were an exchange point? Sure, absolutely. Uh, every ISP should have a, uh, what I would call an unmolested core. You have a, a core service where you get packets in and out of the internet and you are not, uh, performing any sort of mangling or, or uh, you know, preferential service on that. If you're going to do that, do that on your edge towards your subscribers. Uh, so this way you can sell business services, you can sell an enterprise, maybe a, a local hospital or something that wants a BGP connection or they want a dedicated internet connection, but they don't want any of the, uh, maybe the service filtering you might or might not do to your residential customers. But but if I'm a, let's say if I'm an upstream, what would I be, a tier two or tier three provider? I'm not going to provide transit services via my BGP links as a charity. I'm, pri I'm prioritizing everybody coming into my core and getting their services to and from. 
Yes. Um, anybody that you're, you know, you're paying for a transit relationship with. So um, this could be a whole sidebar discussion about the differences between peering and transit. In general, IP transit is you pay somebody to deliver your packets. Peering is you're not paying. Uh, neither side pays. Both sides may have significant costs involved in that peering because you have to haul a circuit somewhere, you have to have a router port, optics, etc. But there's no exchange of money. Mm. Uh, it's an exchange of traffic uh, for the mutual benefit of both parties. Uh, and that's the basis of all internet exchanges. Uh, there's some private peering going on. But uh, IP transit would be defined as you pay somebody to deliver those packets. And that's really the definition right now of tier one versus tier two. And it, it's, it's fuzzy. Thing, things are fuzzy uh, there now. There, there's some tier two internet providers globally that uh, they have to pay for some transit, but uh, they really have a much bigger network than many of the tier ones mm. uh, that don't pay. Basically, tier one is a club of a, uh, it's like a cabal and it's been called a cabal before and they don't want to let anybody else into the club uh, of not having to pay, not having to exchange some sort of money. Um, well, it's a quid pro quo because they normally meet these, the people, they're normally in the same buildings and it's basically started out from, well, my switch is in this building and your router is in this building. Why don't we just cross connect and agree to exchange 500 megabits of traffic with each other or whatever megabit second minutes or whatever the today term for the, that is. Yep. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then and if you get out of whack, they measure it. And then if, if they're sending you 750 megs, but you're only sending back 500, they say, well, you owe me money because I'm actually, you're actually using me as a backhaul. And yeah. 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 There's, there's a whole uh, set of politics and, uh, business relationships and engineering challenges around keeping those peering relationships balanced traffic wise. Uh, some entities like your content providers, they love to peer. Uh, if you go to a public internet exchange or in the same building, they will be in that internet exchange because all those content providers, your Netflixes, your Disney pluses, yeah. they want to get those bits to those eyeballs. If you have eyeballs, they're like, hey, how can we help you? We would love to send some bits to you. Yeah. Um, but if you're, uh, you know, you're talking to somebody else that's maybe a business-oriented network, like, say, an AT&T, yeah, they're, they're not going to peer with you unless you're really, really, really big. It's also, there's another interesting thing that uh, is in the USA, most of the IXPs are for profit. They exist to make a profit. Right. Many of them are. Um, so I happen to be the co-founder of a nonprofit mm -hmm. uh, IXP called Nenix. It's the Northern New England Neutral Internet Exchange. And we're just mm -hmm. a small, tiny little entity with about nine peers. We have uh, two locations in Maine. Uh, we've uh, been hoping to create some additional locations in New England. Uh, there's, you know, some, there's a mix. Uh, there are definitely uh, some large IXs in the States. Uh, like mice and the six that are uh, essentially run as nonprofits. Uh, there's mm -hmm. there's some one-time fees, basically just to cover costs of ports and optics. Uh, but yeah, you have your larger commercial entities, uh, you know, globally like DKIX and AMSIX, and you know, and, and they're 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 actually good people, good good corporate citizens, 
Because, uh, you know, in terms of providing internet service, because there's a lot of businesses out there that, uh, for whatever reason, they want that sort of warm fuzzy of like, hey, I paid for this and somebody's going to answer the phone. Oh, no, that, no, not, no. <laughs> Nobody wants that. If you think you want that, next time somebody gives you something for free or you win a prize, think about how you feel, right? No, you don't want to pay for it. That is an absolute fallacy. <laughs> That is that is a delusion created by too much marketing. Well, the, the, the bean counters in, in America and in, uh, in in Europe and in Australia, to a large extent, in certain regions in Oceania and Asia, it's much more common for the IXPs to be non-profit. Now, that does not mean low cost, as increasingly the non-profit IXPs in Europe have turned into they can charge whatever they want. And uh, getting onto the uh, board of an IX, of a non-profit IXP is an extremely profitable experience these days, just for the record. <laughs> they pay really, really well for a non-profit. Shall we say that uh, it's very generous to give yourself, you've got all that extra overhead that you could pay yourself instead of delivering a profit to somebody who owns a company. So it's just an interesting diversion to talk about the business model variations globally. They are different in different parts of the world. In many cases, uh, in some other parts of the world, the only IXPs are actually government-owned telcos, and they see them as revenue generation for general tax as taxation revenue. They're government-owned telcos, and um, so there is a very diverse set of interconnect possibilities. You can do private interconnect, public interconnect, and when you go private interconnect, you can be unpaid—that is, equivalent share—or paid. You buy, and then there's public interconnect where you go into public IXPs. And some of those are for profit and they charge substantially more than others. And so don't connect to the nearest IXP, find the IXP that's going to give you the best price. Because sometimes the haul to the IXP, even if it's further, can be cheaper overall. Absolutely. And and also everyone's needs are different. You know, one of the original goals of IXs was keep local traffic local. So if that's your primary concern, if there is an IX available to you locally, and uh, let's say the local hospital network uh, is in that IX, or uh, the other provider that a lot of your customers maybe are VPN into a corporate uh, network on that other provider, of course, VPNs are becoming a thing of the past, uh, maybe you want to peer because it's local. Uh, and that you don't want that traffic to go out of state. I mean, that was one of the reasons that I started uh, Nenix with my co-founders was I was really tired of seeing trace routes for, uh, you know, go to Chicago and back or New York City and back mm. from Portland, Maine, when I could see the building I was talking to out my window. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, I've had to place some of my uh, virtual... Uh, servers in Chicago because that's closer to me than New York, even though by mileage it's less than half the distance to get to New York City from uh, where I'm sitting right now. Anyway, Jim, walk me through from the core uh, out to whatever the next link in the chain is, which I don't think is the consumer's house. I think there's some intermediate steps, yeah? Absolutely. So there's going to be some sort of last mile technology. Uh, my preference, and I think everyone's preference these days, is that that be a fiber technology of some sort. Um, but it could be wireless, it could be DSL, it could be something else. So you have some sort of technology-specific last-mile device. Uh, it could be uh, regular old active Ethernet. If, if you're doing fiber services and you're doing uh, Ethernet to small businesses, I, I've actually seen uh, residential ISPs that decided, you know what, 
we're just going to get a big old switch with a whole bunch of SFP ports, and we're going to put Bidai SFP optics in, and we're going to put media converters at the residence, or maybe a Mikrotik with some sort of remote management, and that's our last mile. Totally, as you might say, bog standard Ethernet. Um, really, run that run that all the way across a piece of fiber or a str- yep. strand of fiber uh, between to the, the house and the and the core. Yep. And it, uh, it works great in certain situations, uh, say like a, an island. I've seen this done on islands uh, where you have to provide service, but you're not talking about a, a huge amount so of roads. In that scenario, the last mile, well, there isn't a last mile. It goes all the way, you know, end to end. But in a more typical environment, like like what you're doing, walk me through, like like I start at the core, in like in, in the room that you and I uh, were in, you showed me there's lots of fiber coming in there and patch panels right. and stuff. Um, so talk me through how I'm getting from the core switch, let's say, into that nest of fiber that ends up in the air and heading out. Where does it go next? Sure. So most providers are not doing a single st- strand to the home. You know, they're not doing a dedicated fiber home run the entire distance. Mm. Most fiber networks are some sort of PON, passive optical network. Mm. Uh in the early days, it was GPON or EPON for a while because it was a little bit less expensive. So EPON was one gig, GPON is two and a half gig, uh, one gig up. Uh, these days, the new tech is XGSPON, uh, which is nominally 10 gig up and down, although that's before the FEC uh, calculations uh, and, and all that uh, extra overhead. But uh, that's a, a network designed on a, on a split ratio. So you have fiber that goes out from your head end, from your optical equipment. It's called an OLT, an optical line terminal. It goes out to some sort of splitter. That splitter might be in the same room or the splitter might be 10 kilometers away in a neighborhood. And then you split that fiber out to the subscribers. And that is typically somewhere between a 16 to one or 128 to one split based on the distances that you're going and the market and so forth. So a bunch of strands end up at the splitter on the the core facing side, let's say. Then the splitter splits it out into that ratio where uh, 128, let's say, could be split. uh, Optically. Could be shared into one strand. Absolutely. And then backhaul to the core. Yeah. Yep. And they all share that bandwidth on that pawn. Uh, Some of the new generation of uh, pawn technologies like NG Pawn 2, they're going to be supporting multiple wavelengths of light on the same pawn, just like a DWDM sort of system, so that you would have different channels you could move your customers to, uh, so that you're not talking about just a single, uh, you know, 10 gig shared by 128 customers. You might actually have four 10 gigs shared on that physical pawn. And maybe in some situations, you would have a pawn that's reserved for business customers, maybe a pawn that's reserved for cell site backhaul. Uh, stuff like that. These are the sort of next generation networks that are being designed and built today. Uh, but typically in a in a rural setting, like what we're doing with Tilson Broadband, uh, the network is designed for 32 to one split. And uh, we have sort of uh, neighborhood cabinets uh, where we bring all the fiber for a given neighborhood or a section of a town back to a central cabinet mm-hmm. and put the splitter there. And then we run fiber from there back to the head end. The splitter is an active device? It's a passive device. It is absolutely passive, no power necessary, extremely reliable. Um, They're they're great. uh, There's definitely, uh, 
different schools of thought around how to do your your network design. Uh, Pawn is uh, certainly less expensive, and uh, but you know ultimately, I think uh, in the future, and maybe I'm talking ten years, twenty years, I don't think there's going to be a lot of pawn. I think mm. it's going to be you know direct services because uh, bandwidth needs will will grow. So now I've got also the market is converging around direct Ethernet as well. Because it's so the, cheap. It's so yes, cheap. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Well, it, it's cheap because it's mass-produced. We have this commoditization process that as, uh, as, as markets grow and as the chipsets for Ethernet progress, like the old days you would have PON because it made the cable cheaper. And, but the PON gear that goes on the end is this tiny slice of the market. People are making chipsets that go into everybody's house in Wi-Fi's and uh, Ethernet connected devices everywhere, and it's just use those chipsets. Why? Why go to something special? Exactly. So, like that's that's a big cost is the cost of the pawn equipment, both the CPE and the head end equipment. So typically, you're going to be paying between two hundred to two hundred and fifty dollars per port uh, for uh, you know per customer. Uh, for your pawn port, plus you're going to end up paying a mm, hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars for the CPE device that goes at the customer premise, uh, and that's because you know pawn is a, is a specialty product. Again, we've talked earlier. Ethernet is so cheap, and SFPs are so cheap, and and QSFPs are coming down in price. And but but you you went pawn in in your build your current build your current project. We did uh, in part because it's rural. Yeah, uh, because you know we're we're delivering services in some areas where we're talking about five or seven houses in a mile. Mm. Uh, so uh, pawn is is much more cost effective, um, and and pawn does have certain advantages in terms of management, and um, you know that that's one of the things is that the pawn products are sort of geared towards this mass subscriber and subscriber management and and operations where. Uh, you know, if you're doing traditional Ethernet, you're essentially having to manage, you know, like a, a an IDF level switch, yeah, and and having to manage each and every port as an individual subscriber, which isn't thought of in the terms of a subscriber as a such. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. So the that where that uh, pond splitter lives. Um, so you've got a bunch of additional fiber that's headed down the poles now, which uh, I don't know what you want to call it. That that's your last mile fiber at that point. Yeah? Yep, access fiber to okay. to the subscriber. Okay, but so my and my access fiber is going to when I have a subscriber like they they sign up. Hey, me. Then what? You split out one of the strands from a pole somewhere and then put a box in the house. Essentially, yes, it's a little different than that. So in a, in a design like this, we have engineers that will go ahead and engineer the plant because you have to have design drawings. You got to have the construction crews have some sort of document to build out too. And if we have all the addresses on a road, we know where we're building, we're going to pre-assign ports or strands to individual customers or individual addresses, let's say. And then when that subscriber calls up and says, hey, I, I'd like service, uh, then there's a predetermined point somewhere near their house or, or their business, usually within a couple of pole spans, uh, where there's a, an, an access point, a terminal into the fiber. Um, so that's where we have to then have a crew go and run a drop cable, 
as it's called, which is the very last mile, or let's say the last, you know, 500 feet that goes from that access point on the pole, maybe down to the next pole, and then across to the um, subscriber's house or business. Then we terminate that fiber on a box on the side of the building uh, called a NID, Network Interface Device. Uh, we do that for a couple of reasons. One is it provides a convenient test point for us to be able to test, you know, at the side of the house. Hey, do we have light going back uh, to our core? Uh, and uh, the other reason is because it's a different kind of cable. You're talking about a cable difference, you know, outdoor rated cable versus indoor rated cable. So you have to use a different kind of cable uh, because it's going into somebody's dwelling and fire code and th things like that. Pesky things like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so with the splitter scenario, that means I'm going to be sharing a strand. Do I have a noisy neighbor problem? Uh, no, not really. Uh, we are managing our network. So yeah, you can have a, an individual subscriber that maybe, hey, they're using that one gig service that they bought all day long. Uh, that's fine. We allow that. That's what they're paying for. As long as they're not doing anything that is illegal and not allowed and and some law enforcement agency is going to come knock on our door and ask questions about, um, find business, go to it, use your bandwidth. That's what you're paying for. That's our attitude. Uh, you know, we're not in the business of having data caps uh, or limiting that bandwidth in, in any way. But, but theoretically, you could do that if you needed to. You could, you could throttle or, or shape someone. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, yeah. We, we, I mean, we do shape to whatever level of service they're purchasing. We only have three products at present. We have a 500 meg product, a one gig product, and a 10 gig product. That's mm -hmm. it. Um, so yeah, if we if we would manage our pawns, if we saw that hey, this pawn is getting, you know, 80 percent utilization on a regular basis, well then we'll split it up a little bit. We'll put another splitter in. We'll move some subscribers around. Um, we're going to actively manage the network in that way rather than going and yelling at that <laughs> subscriber and saying, hey, would you stop using the service that you pay for? Now, you said you shape their bandwidth to conform to the rate of service they subscribe to. Where does that shaping happen? Uh, so right now it's happening at the OLT layer at the at that device. It has uh, some rate shapers built into it. So it that's, that's the splitter device. Uh, no, uh, this is the active device, the uh, optical line terminal uh, electronics at the head end. So it rate shapes oh, the downstream sense, yeah. at that end. And then the CPE device is rate shaping the upstream at the customer's end. Okay. Uh, Cause as, as you know, it's, you have to do it on both sides of your connection. Hmm. So how do you manage this? You said that this pawn environment is uh, subscriber oriented, kind of friendly that way. So what, what does your management infrastructure look like? Uh, so we use a variety of tools. Uh, we Every vendor has their own set of proprietary tools for managing these sort of networks. Some are quite terrible and quite very 90s. Uh, some of them were even flash-based up until just recently. Uh, and then others are a little more forward-thinking, uh, you know, HTML5 type interfaces. So we have a, a management interface into uh, our optical system equipment. We happen to use a, a vendor called Calyx. They have a nice little web interface, lets us manage the, the gear, see the levels, see if a customer's gone up and down. We can trap on that. We can do all the traditional SNMP things if well, we want. You describe something that feels pretty old school. You didn't say, oh, every, all the modern stuff's got sweet APIs. We've got oh, all these awesome, uh, uh, you know, okay, tooling. Okay. And 
Yeah, it it does. We're getting there. Um, <laughs> there there are some APIs, and and Calyx has some some nice APIs and some nice cloud services, and we use that as well for uh, some of the managed Wi-Fi that we offer. Uh, but you know, from a network overview, capacity management planning, uh, I'm pretty old school. I mean, we're talking about uh, Libra NMS, and uh, and you know, tools like Smokeping and and your good old standard RD well, graphs. And, and automation is often about repeatable tasks that you do frequently. When yep. you're provisioning a network like this, it's you're not touching it all that often. I'm guessing. Well, you shouldn't be. I mean, the, the ideal goal for any ISP should be to automate everything as much as possible, uh, because that's, uh, you know, automation means lower headcount, lower headcount means improved profitability. So um, we're not 100% of where we want to be in terms of automation right now, uh, because of some some vendor changes we've made recently. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're working on automation so that our OSS BSS system where we bill subscribers and provision subscribers. The the overall goal, uh, the what everybody's goal is in in this industry is you have a customer service person that takes an order or the customer themselves fills out their order online, and then all that information just seamlessly flows through a set of APIs and northbound interfaces and so forth, uh, so that it provisions the customer, you schedule the install. You know, the field crew, all of that, and that there's the minimum amount of rekeying data and, and what I call swivel chair activities. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, large telecoms uh, where the process is Byzantine. I have seen situations where a piece of paper was physically routed to seven different people in the course of being provisioned. And the same data was rekeyed over and over again because their systems did not talk to each other. But automation is a journey here, as you're saying. <laughs> so you're you're yes. you're truly in startup mode. You know, yes. I, I I've seen your operation. It's uh, you you guys are making it happen. Um, yep. But it's not this polished, gleaming metal and blinky well, lights yet. Not yet. Give us a little time. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of the reason that Tilson Broadband exists is that uh, we are going to be an exemplar network for uh, Tilson consulting customers because Tilson does a lot of things. We do a lot of network implementation work in all sorts of sectors and telecom. We do a lot of building, a lot of consulting work. Um, this is a greenfield. We're intending to make this the best sort of modern ISP it can be. Uh, we started with IPv6 from the get-go. Uh, it was not an afterthought on this network like it is in most. Uh, you know, we, we had a budget to work with, so not everything is exactly the way that, you know, I would have preferred it, but Hey, when does everybody get all the budget that they want? <laughs> so kind of a parting question here, Jim, um, do you have any, as you look back on the system that you've just built and some of your, you know, historical ISP builds, do you have any, Hey, if you're thinking about this, do this, or don't make this mistake I made. Uh, so my advice and, and coming from a consulting background has always been, hey, you know, that temporary system, that temporary hack that you think you're doing, that you're going to replace that next week, next month, or we're just going to set up this, this VM and we're going to run this software and it'll be fine. Yeah, guess what? If you, if you keep doing those things, that becomes the way. 
Uh, and uh, so you really need to work hard on really sticking to automation and going back and fixing your mistakes. It's okay to do something temporarily, but uh, you really got to make sure you go back and fix it the right way because otherwise it's technical debt that's going to plague you forever. You can't scale as effectively if you're living with all of that misery. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's also true that you don't have to anymore. No. Um, what was true was that automation used to be phenomenally difficult and hard to achieve. Um, and today, having an accounting system and integrating it with a provisioning system, which was integrated with the networking devices, is much less of a challenge. Like the days of SNMP only as provisioning are past us, and we tend to have APIs and systems like that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I come from the days of expect scripts, uh, uh -huh. running on telnet sessions <laughs> yeah. to make things happen. Uh, I think maybe we've all been there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the technology is better than it's ever been, but it still requires customization. I mean, that's, that's the thing that the vendors don't like to tell you is that, well, sure mm -hmm. it's automated, but you know, we're going to have to have a developer do a few little tweaks of this and that because of your unique business case. <laughs> Oh, well, Jim, this has been a fun discussion. And if you're out there listening and you're really keen on building your own ISP and wanted more technical detail, I got to tell you, we just kind of ran out of time. There's so much more in the notes that we could have gone through. But uh, Jim, if people have more specific questions, things they want to dig into with you, are you available on uh, Twitter? How can people find you? Oh, I am on Twitter way too much. Uh, so I am at Troutman on Twitter. You can also find me on LinkedIn as James Troutman. Uh, that's generally how I'll know that you're a salesperson, is if you call me James. Um, you can also uh, find out more about Tilson Broadband uh, on Twitter at Tilson Broadband and uh, Tilson at Tilson Tech and TilsonTech.com. Uh, Tilson is constantly hiring. Uh, we have over 60 open positions right now across the industry in all sorts of roles. You might want to check that out. And the last thing I'm going to plug is uh, I help run an event called uh, the New England Peering Forum. Mm -hmm. That's coming up September 10th in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's an in internet professional-oriented conference, small in size, uh, with a focus on the internet in New England specifically. Uh, so any yeah, the regional event down in down in Boston. I, I yeah. attended one of those. Yes, um, you did. It, it was it was nerd central for sure uh, yeah. during that for the for the people that were there. Again, anypeeringforum.org if you're in the New England area of uh, North America and might be interested in such a thing. And again, that's happening in like for real for real in person. September 10th. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we may be all wearing hazmat suits again yeah. at that point, but uh, okay. but we're intending to have it in person. Uh, we think in person is is very important for that the, the sort of event that we run where relationships are formed and uh, and knowledge is transferred excellent well jim thank you for your time today and for you listening this is a longer than normal show if you listened all the way to the end good for you you're awesome high fives and so on if you like these kind of shows uh, network engineering shows things for your professional career development Head up to packetpushers.net. There you can find more about our community. There's a community blog where people just like you are writing and sharing their knowledge with the community. Just let us know if you'd like to contribute and we'll get you set up as an author. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. You can find us on LinkedIn. We're on Slack. Go to packetpushers.net slash Slack and get some information about our Slack group and join. It's free and uh, it's open to everybody as long as you follow the few rules we've got there as our guidelines to join that Slack group. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.